Gracious God, we do praise you today and so thankful that we can be together to rejoice and sing these hymns and songs of praise to you, uh, to pray together, to give of our offerings, and now to come before you uh, proclaiming and hearing your word. And I pray, God, that uh, it would be truly a, a time that is edifying and uplifting uh, to each of us as we continue in Genesis chapter 9. Um, but most of all, God, it would be faithful to you. It would be causing all of us to look to you once again and to see what a great and glorious God you are. So thanks so much, God, for this time in your word, and we ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. We're going to finish up chapter 9 today, and then next Sunday will be a special Christmas sermon um, outside of our series. So we'll look forward to that. But today we're completing Genesis 9, and this is the post-flood, post-catastrophe world. And we come upon quite a strange story. One might even call it a sordid story, one of moral distaste and contempt. Uh, if we weren't expository preachers preaching consecutively through a book, uh, we might even be tempted to just kind of skip over this one, this part of Genesis, because it almost borders on the salacious. The subject matter involves drunkenness, nakedness, dishonor, and cursings upon a whole people group. It shows us that soon after the great flood, sin and shame and corruption abounds on the earth, as I've been saying. But it also points us in an illustrating kind of way, to God's answer to such sin and shame and corruption. And that, of course, the answer is the Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's read the text, and if you will stand up with me, that will be wonderful. As we honor God's word, this is not man's word, but the word of God. Genesis 9, our passage today is verses 18 through 29. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Please be seated. Our theme today is written in your bulletin there, 
as shameful sin rears its ugly head in ourselves and in others, we must battle against it and look to Christ to cover us. And uh, we'll revisit that again, but we have uh, the first couple of verses here to go over. It's kind of a, a prologue, verses 18 and 19. And the sons of Noah are named once more. This is the fourth time uh, since the end of Genesis chapter 5 that all three are named. But this time there's an additional person also mentioned who is Ham's son, right? Ham was the father of Canaan, it says in verse 18. That's a bit of foreshadowing of what occurs next in the passage. The spotlight is on Ham with the repercussions that will affect Canaan and his descendants. So it says that these three, which is Shem, Ham, and Japheth, from these the whole earth was populated. It's out of those three sons of Noah from whom the whole earth will be repopulated after the flood. The table of nations in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 10, provides us the names of these three sons, descendants, along with their geographic locations. If you look at chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. Verse 2 says, The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshech and Tiras. And it goes on. But then in verse 6, it says the sons of Ham were Cush and Mitzrayim and Put and Canaan. And then you go down to verse 21, and also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. And that means, okay, that's called the table of nations, Genesis chapter 10. That means that each of us here today have come from the three sons of Noah. As they were obedient to God's mandate to multiply, be fruitful and multiply. All the world's present peoples were descendants, our descendants of Noah's three sons and their wives. And so I don't know if we often think of that, where we came from, but of course our first parents were Adam and Eve, but then came the flood and then the rest, um, the eight people who were left, and then it's from these three sons that all of us came from. So our post-catastrophe title for today is Naked Noah and Peeping Ham. And I already told you what the theme is. Um, It is in your bulletin as well. But we should keep this in mind. Uh, Shameful sin, it does come up. It rears its ugly head. Uh, The flood did not take care of the problem of human depravity. God did judge sin. But the people who came out of the ark were sinners, um, just as the ones who died uh, in the flood. Um, And yet, how are we going to deal with that? Well, the first point is that God's people must deal with this shameful sin honorably. God's people must deal with shameful sin honorably, verses 20 through 23. Um, verse 20 says that Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. So he becomes a farmer, and he begins growing grapes as an agriculturist and a viticulturist, which means someone who takes care of a uh, vineyard. Both are fine occupations to have. But, verse 21, what does Noah, this one righteous man in all the earth, this singularly blameless man, go and do? Well, it says the progression. He drinks, he, he drank of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself. 
He basically drinks too much wine and becomes stinking drunk. To be clear, drinking wine or alcohol is not necessarily wrong or sinful according to the Bible. In fact, when you read some of the descriptions of wine in Scripture, it seems that God actually has a favorable view of it for people to enjoy it in moderation. For the ancient Israelites, abundant wine or new wine came to be regarded as a sign of blessing. If you read, I'm not going to read the verses, but you can jot them down. Numbers 18, verse 12. Deuteronomy 7, verse 13. Deuteronomy 11, verse 14. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. All of those verses speak to that. But, but of course, the Bible says more about this issue of wine and alcohol. Clearly, becoming drunk is not godly behavior. It is not upright to be drunk. As we'll see with Noah, drunkenness frequently leads to other foolish, wasteful, destructive behavior. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Is not wise. Read, foolish. Whoever gets drunk by it is foolish. Uh, Before Christ, when I used to indulge in alcohol, back in my college days, um, I once ran over a mile to the local 7-Eleven in the dead of winter with no shirt on. And why did I run over to the 7-Eleven for over a mile in the dead of winter with no shirt on? Because I wanted to get a pack of cigarettes, because I also smoked in those days. And so, speaking of folly, uh, Proverbs 23 Proverbs 23, verses 29 to 32, says this, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? And who has redness of eyes? Verse 30 says, Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent, and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things. That's a good warning, good words of wisdom from Proverbs. There's others, Proverbs 23, 20, earlier in that proverb. Also Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5. You can also go to Isaiah 5, verses 22 and 23. But all of those Old Testament descriptions and warnings are also supported by New Testament commands and prescriptions, particularly for Christians. We all know Ephesians 5.18, I hope, which says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but rather be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. And we can apply that to other substances as well, not just alcohol, but, for example, marijuana or pills or drugs or whatever. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14 is another good verse. It says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Romans 13, 13 and 14. Um, I won't read these verses, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
when it describes the qualifications for elders and deacons. It says, not addicted to wine in verse 3. Verse 8 says, not to indulge in much wine for deacons. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10 pushes it even further and says that drunkards are among those who are listed in that just uh, passage there, verses 9 and 10. Drunkards are among those listed who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Someone who has a pattern of drunkenness, of drinking, of abusing alcohol, will not go to heaven, whether you say you're a Christian or not. And so Romans 14, verses 19 through 21, I will also bring this one up. Romans 14, 19 to 21, because it doesn't speak just about us, but about being mindful of others, okay? others-mindedness. Romans 14, 14, verse 19 says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Verse 21, It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So there's a greater context to all that, but the point is, that we should be thinking about others in the choices that we make, even in this area. So all these prescriptions and warnings in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, um, especially the New Testament, have led many Christians to abstain from alcohol completely. And I would include myself as one of those, me and my wife, when at some point when we became Christians, and especially as we entered into the ministry, Um, It became a a matter of wanting to set the standard high and not wanting to cause anyone to stumble and say, hey, look, the pastor drinks, and so it's okay for me to drink, even though I tend to abuse alcohol. And so that's not an example or standard that I wanted to set as a pastor once I entered into ministry and was preparing for all of that. So in the end, it's a matter for Christians, uh, a matter of conscience, a matter of wisdom, a matter of thinking of others, a matter of prayer, um, knowing the pitfalls of just abusing alcohol and just the destructive nature of it. I generally counsel young Christians to not, don't even start. Don't even start if you've never, never had it. Um, And so there's different views on that, but that is my perspective. So I find it interesting to note that Noah, once again, was a righteous man, blameless. He walked with God. Um, He was the one righteous man who believed in all the earth before the flood. Uh, But that doesn't mean he was perfect or sinless. And so just shortly, we don't know exactly how long after the flood, this is what happens. And once again, just a reminder that the Bible is a real book, right, with real people who have real flaws, real faults, real sins. Um, We don't know if this was one of Noah's issues before the flood. It doesn't seem like it. But in any case, what is illustrated is that even after the flood, sin soon abounds. And in whatever form, it it displays itself. Um, Noah becoming drunk here is not something, obviously, that the Bible commends or promotes. Rather, it has negative connotations and usually leads to further ungodly, inappropriate behavior. Like what? Like what for Noah? Well, it says that he uncovered himself inside his, his tent, and that's the real shame of the matter. In his drunken state, Noah acts the fool, just like the Proverbs say, right? Taking off all his clothes, his robe, his undergarments, etc., parading about in his birthday suit, so to speak, stark naked in his tent. Okay? He, 
He strips himself completely, okay, not bothering to cover up with anything. This is unseemly, inappropriate, out-of-control behavior, especially for a man of God who's supposed to be a godly example for his wife, for his family, okay, to behave with honor and dignity and self-control. Um, drinking and getting drunk, disrobing with no regard or inhibition, this is really disgraceful, shameful of Noah. And mind you, he's 600-plus years old at this point. He's been walking with God for a very, 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 very long time. might wonder if this is the same faithful, righteous man who God saved from the flood. But once again, the Bible's a real book, and it just tells us the truth. And maybe those of us who are older and been Christians for some time um, should take heed, right? First Corinthians 10 says, let him, um, uh, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall, right? So, uh, Pastor Stephen Cole, I like what he says here. Quote, past godliness does not guarantee future godliness. You don't build up an immunity toward sin. Neither age nor maturity provide protection against temptation. We must walk in dependence upon the Lord daily. Noah's sin also teaches us that we are often the most vulnerable when the pressure is off. When Noah was surrounded by wickedness, he lived righteously. But when the storm was over and he and his family were the only ones on earth, Noah fell into sin. When the pressure is off, our guard comes down. I don't know about you, but that's, uh, that happens to me quite a bit. Constant vigilance is the price of victory over sin. Those who live righteously before God know their own propensity towards sin and live in constant dependence upon the Lord, end quote. So I, I love what the uh, old Christian evangelist and missionary George Mueller did. Uh, by the way, he lived to the age of 92, and uh, he cared for over 10,000 orphans uh, in his lifetime. And so after walking closely with God for those many decades, he used to pray, Lord, don't let me become a wicked old man. I think that's a... It's an apt, fitting, appropriate prayer. Uh, the issue of nakedness should bring to mind uh, an earlier event in Genesis, okay, the very second C that we went over before, corruption, the fall, the original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, it's kind of interesting to trace that theme of nakedness in the story of mankind so far. Uh, from the very beginning, nakedness was a thing of shame for fallen mankind because Remember in chapter 2, verse 25, after God introduces Adam to his wife, Eve, and he's just blown away by her, right? Exclaiming that poetic language, his uh, little song of, of joy there. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then verse 25, it says, the man and his wife were both, what? Naked and were not ashamed. But then... The fall happens, their disobedience, Adam and Eve eat the, uh, the forbidden fruit. And verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were what? Naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Okay, the very first awareness after they disobeyed God was, to, was to, that they were naked. And their first instinct 
after they realized that, was to cover themselves up. It is actually a sound instinct because it provides a boundary for fallen human relations and fallen eyes and hearts and minds. But before, when they were naked, they were not ashamed. Now they are. And then in verse 10, after God calls Adam, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. So they were now ashamed before one another, and they were also now ashamed before God, their creator and maker. So guilt, guilt of sin, automatically produces shame And the shame here is of being naked, open, exposed, uncovered, and unprotected. And people today and through the ages, uh, we still have this uh, mixture of fascination with nakedness and a repulsion to it. We understand that there's something wrong there Um, physically before people, right? We do everything we can to cover ourselves up, right? Uh, We spend a lot of time, some of us spend a lot of time, just making ourselves look presentable and nice and covered. And um, just as we go out to meet people or come to church or go to work or what have you, um, we cover ourselves because not to do so is immodest, right? It's shameful to show outwardly what is meant to be for private. And so we understand that. We know that. Uh, Everybody knows that. Um, And yet... We have also this sinful, shameful desire for, for nakedness. And we, we pay money to, to see, well, sinful uh, times. And people would, would pay money to go to places where people are undressing, whether it's a movie or a place or a club or what have you. And so uh, these are um, incredibly close-to-home kind of things. And so besides the physical aspect of nakedness, there's also just emotional nakedness. And when we talk about nakedness, uh, not just physically, we're talking about vulnerability and transparency. And socially speaking, before people, uh, we hide things, right? We conceal things. We're not completely exposed and open. And some of that is wisdom, and some of that is fear, shame, and guilt, because of things that we don't want people to know about us. And so there's that aspect of nakedness as well. Also spiritually, which is tied in with that social and emotional aspect of it. Before people, before God, there's this spiritual aspect of we're we're not completely open uh, before God. Um, There's a sense where we know we're still guilty. We know we still have sin. Um, It helps to, to be in a lifestyle of repentance. But overall... Uh, people still have that sense. And even as Christians, there's a certain spiritual longing uh, to get back to paradise, like, a, like an Edenic place, to a state and condition where we can be completely naked and open, completely unashamed, laying our souls bare before God, inside and out before others. Hey, that, that kind of innocence, that purity, that beauty even. And so there's only one way to be brought back to that spiritual state of openness, of rightness, of purity, this relationship with our Creator God, and it's by Christ. It's by Christ. And Christ on the cross, who was 
you know what? Uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, when we watch the movies and we see pictures and stuff, Christ is um, on, on the cross, and there's usually something covering him. But many historians say that uh, to increase the humiliation and shame and degradation of crucifixion, as if that wasn't bad enough to be publicly nailed to a cross, that the victims, the criminals, were hung naked. And so Jesus, sparing all for us, exposing, being exposed and humiliated that much, took on the ultimate suffering and shame on our behalf. And he is the answer. And so when we go on to verse 22 here, we saw naked Noah. This is peeping Ham. It says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And here's where Ham is spotlighted, as I mentioned before. What he did when he saw his father's nakedness, maybe to us seems eh, not too bad on the surface, right? He sees dad naked, goes and tells his brothers. Um, by the way, there's some commentators who surmise that Ham did some perverted or sinful act to his father. Um, a number of possibilities, which I'm not even going to mention, but um, I think that's complete speculation because it's not mentioned at all in the text, uh, no matter how hard you search and in the rest of the Bible. Uh, rather, Ham's wrongdoing and shameful sin, I think, is shown in the contrasting actions of his two brothers in the next verse. It says, But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. You know, that word but there is a indicating stark contrast with Ham. These two brothers, they took extreme measures to make sure they did not see Noah, their father's nakedness. That was what they were avoiding at all costs. So they get a blanket that's wide enough and big enough to span both of their shoulder widths, being sure to walk backwards into their father's tent and averting their faces and their eyes away from Noah, even as they covered him with the blanket. Hey, that would have taken some doing, right? Ham, on the other hand, he saw the nakedness of his father. He made no effort whatsoever to cover him up or to try to figure out a way to keep it to himself. And even though there doesn't appear to be any perverted sexual act involved, it doesn't seem like Ham just like took an accidental glance, right? And then he looked away. It says saw, the Hebrew word is ra'ah. And it means to look at or inspect or to perceive, even to gaze at. One commentator says this word has the nuance of gazing with satisfaction. Uh, there's another pastor who says, quote, Ham dishonors his father. He looks on his father's disgrace with a sense of perversity. He goes out and tells his brothers, delighting in his father's shameful and disgraceful position, end quote. I just want to point out the, the seriousness of dishonoring father and mother. Later in the Old Testament, there's, there's various ways of disrespecting parents which warranted even the death penalty. And speaking of capital punishment, which we've talked about in past sermons, uh, this is the laws for Israel. Okay, this one, the Genesis 9, life for a life. Okay, thou shalt put to death the murderer. That is uh, a, a universal kind of principle and law. But um, Exodus 21, verses 15 
And 17 says, He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 21 also, verses 18 to 21, says, If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Verse 21, Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. And so um, serious, serious laws uh, about dishonoring parents. Uh, on the positive end, Exodus 20, verse 12, which is the fifth commandment, it says, honor your father and mother. It's extremely important. New Testament, quoting Exodus 20, uh, Ephesians 6, verse 1 to 3, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And verse 2 says, honor your, your father and your mother, which is the first command with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you shall live long and prosperous. And so our ancestor Ham here in Genesis 9 had no respect for his father. He did not show honor to his dad, Noah. Rather, he goes and blabs to his brothers about the patriarch's nakedness. This is a gross violation of Noah's dignity before his sons as a father and a man. So I don't know that we take uh, the seriousness of honoring our parents, our fathers especially, uh, too seriously these days. Um, our culture doesn't help, right? We're always, they're always depicting fathers as just uh, moronic, imbecilic, clueless, just self-centered men who are just slaves to their lusts. Um, that's not right. Uh, the, the Bible would tell us to honor and respect your parents, right? Children, obey. Adult children, honor. Okay? Not necessarily obey, but honor them, even as adults. There's many ways and expressions of honoring parents, and it doesn't matter if they're believers or unbelievers. It's so important either way. So how does honor and respect and even love respond to the sins of others? Okay, we're talking about shameful sin here. Noah was not innocent, obviously. Um, so how does love and honor and respect respond to the sins of others? Okay, and even of godly parents, even of godly fathers. Verse 23, we've already looked at it, but I just want to highlight one word of this verse today. Okay? A verb, Shem and Ham covered the nakedness of their father. Covered. This is what God did for Adam and Eve when they sinned. In Genesis 3, verse 21, what did he do after he pronounces the cursings on, on the serpent and on Adam and on Eve? Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Okay? Just another hint of the gospel. And it's what Jesus did for us on the cross. Okay, he atoned for our sins. He covered for us by his own perfect life, his death, and his sacrifice. So these are pictures for us, looking back to Adam and Eve even and pointing us forward to the Savior. Subtle hints, clues, imagery. Progressive revelation, bringing just a bit more light, shining a little more light on the gospel as scripture progresses. And the gospel tells us that repentant sinners are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. 
In the Old Testament, Isaiah puts it this way, Isaiah 61, verse 10. He says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Contrast that with what he says a few chapters later, Isaiah 64, 6, right? Our righteous deeds before God are like polluted garments. So instead of those polluted garments, we are robed with garments of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, New Testament, says that he made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin described that essential gospel doctrine as the wondrous exchange in which Christ has taken upon himself the burden of our unrighteousness with which we were oppressed, and he has clothed us with his righteousness, end quote. See, Christ does indeed hide our polluted garments, our filthy rags of sin, and dresses us in his perfect garb, both outside and especially within. He imputes and credits it to us. As those who have been cleansed and forgiven and covered and have our sins taken away by Christ's blood payment, what should we do? Well, we should do 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, which says, Love bears all things. Love bears all things. And um, that word bears, it, 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 it means to protect or to keep by covering. I don't think we often think of that word bear that way, but uh, stego is the, the Greek word, to preserve, to cover with silence, to conceal, even to hide. Love covers all things. You might think of that verse. You might translate it in your mind that way. Um, Proverbs 10, verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Okay, cover, that's the word. Shem and Japheth, good examples, covering Noah's shame and nakedness. First Peter 4, verse 8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, Christians. This is specifically towards Christians, towards one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. And then just uh, let me give you a very practical purpose. Proverbs 17, verse 9 in the Book of Wisdom. It says, He who conceals a transgression, it's talking about of others, he who conceals a transgression of others seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. He who repeats a matter. Again, peeping Ham here repeated the shameful nakedness of Noah, his father, to his brothers. Shem and Japheth, they could have taken part in that with him, in leering at him and laughing about it, mocking him or gazing at their father, demeaning him even further, but instead they covered him up, honoring him as best they could, not looking whatsoever. Preserving their father's dignity, love covers a multitude of sins. So application here, I want to address children and adult children and also husbands and wives. Um, treat your parents honorably, okay? even if they've messed up. Okay? Talk to them respectfully. Avoid continually talking about the sins of your parents, repeating it to them or to other people or to yourself. Okay? Every one of us have sinned, no matter how hard we try. Okay? 
And so um, it doesn't mean that you never acknowledge that your parents have sinned or just to portray them as perfect parents or people. But don't keep bringing things up from the past or keep blaming them about the way things have turned out or the way that you turned out, the way your life turned out, because this is not helpful to your relationship to them. It's, it's not helpful to your own spiritual health and growth and healing, and it's not a good testimony as a Christian. Okay? Ultimately, it's not honoring to the God and Christ who saved you and who gave you your parents in the first place. So I'll just add this quickly. Parents, likewise, it's not good to unnecessarily share things uh, with friends and others about our kids. Right? We, we want to be uh, mindful of that. But addressing husbands and wives, also we do not unnecessarily go to our family and friends with complaints and gripes about our spouse's failures. Okay? Love bears, love covers all things. This doesn't mean that You never go to people or friends or pastors for help when things get difficult. But if you love Jesus Christ and you love your spouse, love will be considerate enough to keep certain things confidential, not to broadcast it to everyone. Once again, love is a covering for sin. And um, let me be quick to add that I'm not talking about spousal abuse or if your husband or wife is abusing alcohol or drugs and refusing to admit they have a problem and they're not seeking help, you should talk to someone that you trust for help and counsel for those things. And even for other difficulties and conflicts that arise in marriage, have trusted friends, have trusted people, have trusted pastors and disciplers who you can share and receive counsel from. But, again, the point is not to dishonor, not to disrespect even those who are in sin, and maybe even in sin against you. Love covers. You don't ignore people's sin problems and issues. You don't just sweep them under the rug and never talk about them. But we shouldn't expose them in an unneeded way, dragging out their faults and mistakes so everybody can see. Love would rather atone for and mend things quietly. Brings us to our second point. God's people must deal with sin shameful sin even, honorably. But our second point is that God sovereignly brings cursing on unrighteousness and blessing on righteousness, verses 24 to 27. God sovereignly brings cursing on righteousness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. We don't have any clues whatsoever from the text here or anywhere else in Scripture how Noah knew what Ham had done. Somehow he knew Maybe he remembered what he saw in his groggy, drunken state when he woke up. Perhaps it was obvious from the way the brothers were acting or the way Ham was acting. Maybe God revealed it to him and the text doesn't just tell us. All of that is speculation. The Bible just keeps it very general. It details how Noah knew apparently is not the important point. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Verse 25. By the way, these are the only recorded words of Noah in the Bible. So there must be something important about it. And um, oddly enough, it, it could be a little perplexing, right? Why did Noah put a curse on Ham's son, Canaan, instead of on Ham himself? Canaan didn't commit the sin. 
And the Bible says that each man is accountable for his own sin, not for the sins of his fathers, right? Ezekiel 18, verse 20 says, The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Ezekiel 18.20 So we can be sure that God is not punishing Canaan, the son, for the sin of his father, Ham. Some have suggested that maybe Canaan took part in his father's sin somehow, or he was there looking with Ham. But again, just pure conjecture. Okay? It's not in the text, so I, I, I can't go there. But to help with the reasoning here, we should understand that this is not Noah just pronouncing a curse on Canaan. Okay, but Noah is proclaiming an oracle, okay, a prophecy of sorts. He is prophetically revealing the destiny of Ham's son, Canaan. Okay, as as Ham's son, Ham has dishonored his father, Noah, so Canaan would dishonor his father, Ham. Uh, John Currid, commentator, helps, quote, he says, Perhaps this is poetic justice in the sense that as Noah is grieved by his son, so Ham will be affected by his son, end quote. Uh, that kind of seems to be uh, the best explanation to me. Ham didn't honor his father, so he is punished by having a son who will bring dishonor to him. And in the unfolding storyline of Scripture, we see that this is God sovereignly dealing with unrighteousness in his providential plan. We know that the Canaanites will play a huge part in the history of Israel. They are the ones Israel will later be told to destroy as their time of judgment has come. And this was Moses and Joshua, the promised land, all of that. Okay, they would eventually become slaves of Israel. This all began with the sin of Ham and the cursed prophecy against his son, Canaan. So Noah pronounces this oracle of cursing here, and the Lord is the one who fulfills it. The Lord fulfills it not merely on Canaan, the son himself, but upon Canaan's descendants after him. Noah proclaims this prophetic announcement regarding the future nations, which would all come from Shem and Japheth and Ham, including, of course, Canaan, one of Ham's sons. So what was that particular curse on Canaan? That is, the Canaanite peoples. In verse 25, he'd be a servant of servants to them, right? Basically, slavery. The Canaanites would be slaves to both Shem's and Japheth's descendants. And I need to make a couple of important footnotes here. Because okay, the first one is this, that there were some people in the church in earlier generations who interpreted that the descendants of Canaan were black people, okay, dark-skinned people of Africa. And they used the curse on Canaan to try to justify slavery. And some of these people were probably prejudiced, you might even say racist, um, others, not necessarily so. They were just trying to correctly interpret Scripture and correctly apply it. I would say that they failed. Why is that? Because the problem with this is that black people did not come from Canaan. It's true that blacks and African people did come from the line of Ham, who is Canaan's father. But look at uh, Genesis 10, verse 6, which I actually mentioned before. 
It lists the sons of Ham in verse 6 of chapter 10. So the sons of Ham were Cush, and this is basically the Ethiopian peoples. Mitzrayim is talking about Egypt. It says Put, which is generally the North African countries, and Canaan, which is the country of Canaan or ancient Palestine. Okay, again, the curse was not on Ham, but it was on Canaan. And it was not on Canaan's brothers, which was those first three, right? So Canaan was the father of the Near Eastern peoples, not Africans or blacks here, but the Canaanites who inhabited ancient Palestine. Later in history, they would be conquered by Joshua, as I mentioned, when Israel took the promised land. Okay, so I hope that clears that part of it up here. The second footnote I want to give here is that it seems that Canaan was not singled out for the curse randomly, this prophetic oracle. It's possible. It's possible that Noah saw in him similar dishonorable tendencies and perversions that had been evidenced in Ham. Okay, it's possible. Uh, I will quote R. Kent Hughes here. He says, Canaan was the father of the Canaanites, the depraved nemesis of Israel. Therefore, the curse fell on Israel's future enemies. The Canaanites were essentially depraved people. Everything the pagan Canaanites did was an extrapolation of Ham's lurid sensuality. From the moment Abram entered the land, the Canaanites were there spreading corruption. And you go to Genesis 13 and 15 and 18 and 19 and 38 and on. gives descriptions of these descendants of Canaan. And Leviticus 18, we don't have time to go there, but uh, jot it down. It describes the degenerate, immoral, sexual, perverted practices of the Canaanites and um, even uses uh, euphemisms of, of that word nakedness so as not to offend the reader. Um, 24 times that word nakedness is used in Leviticus 18. And so, the, so describing that, so that's why I think there may be some, even though it's not clearly in the text there, that maybe Noah saw in, in Canaan, uh, Ham's son, similar traits. Uh, it's seen in their descendants very clearly throughout the rest of Scripture. So um, I could go on with uh, quoting Walt Kaiser here about just the archaeological evidence of the sexual deviancy of the, the Canaanites, but um, I, won't, I won't share that. But hopefully the point is made there in that footnote. All right? So God sovereignly brings cursing upon unrighteousness, but also he brings blessing on righteousness. This is verses 26 and 27. He also said, Noah said, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. So the blessings go to those two sons, right? We might call them the the righteous brothers. It's mentioned twice more here that Canaan would serve them, be their slaves. Um, By the way, the order, chronological order, there's a lot of confusion sometimes with this, but I think it's pretty clear that the order of the sons is Shem and Japheth and Ham. Shem is described in chapter 10, verse 21, as the older brother of Japheth. There's a translational um, just uh, debate there, but I believe that's what it is. Shem, the older brother of Japheth. And then chapter 9, verse 24, Ham is described as Noah's youngest son. So Japheth would be in the middle, right? So anyway, 
the blessings on, on Shem is that he is the only one that, that includes God's covenant name, right? Yahweh. And Shem actually means name, so there's a little play on words here. But Shem is the father of the Shemites or Semites, Semitic peoples. So anti-Semitic means anti-Jew, anti-Hebrew, anti-Israel. Right, Semitic Semites are, are these people. Chapter 10 verse, 21, ten, verse twenty-one again says, "The father of all the children of Eber." Chapter ten, verse twenty-one, the table of nations. Okay, this is the the describing Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, or Hebrews, okay, or Hebrew peoples. So Noah clearly associates Shem with Yahweh and says, "Yahweh is the God." Of Shem. The clear implication here is that Shem had an intimate personal relationship with the Lord. And Noah was not just spouting empty words here, but a blessed oracle with prophetic meaning upon Shem and his descendants. This would be fulfilled by God in the life of future Semites and ultimately the greatest blessing would come from Shem's line, which is the Savior, Messiah, Christ himself. The blessings on Japheth, Noah has a particular request, like a, like a prophetic prayer for his second son. May God enlarge Japheth, expansion of his tribe and territory. As chapter 10 indicates, his line would travel north and east, eventually making up the peoples of Europe and Asia. So just to give you a quick summary, quick preview of chapter 10, Ham's line, Ham's line, Ham's line moved south, the third son, right? Um, moved south towards Africa. From them came the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, as I mentioned, and the tribes of Israel found in Palestine, the promised lands, the Canaanites. Okay, this is the line of Ham. Japheth, they moved north and east. The Gentile peoples, including Persians and Greeks, and Scythians and Romans and Macedonians would come from him. And then Shem's line are the Semites, as I said. They remain mostly in the central area, Mesopotamia and the Arabian Peninsula. It was from them that God chose Abram, who would become Abraham, who was the early patriarch of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? And so... That was the blessing on Japheth. He also adds that he would dwell, they would dwell in the tents of Shem. Uh, it's not super clear what is meant by this or how it was fulfilled. Most commentators take this to mean primarily the spiritual blessings of, of Shem, of Semites, would include the Gentiles, which is also mentioned in the Abrahamic covenant, right? Which I talked about last week, Genesis 12. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so, this brings us to our epilogue here, verses 28 and 29. We had the prologue. This is the epilogue, verse 28 and 29. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Okay, more facts, numbers, specific details given, further indicating the historicity of this narrative. This is God's story. It is the truth. It is factual. It is his history of the flood, of that era, of long lives. Doing the math again, Noah was 600 years old at the time of the flood, and he lived 350 more years after that, totaling 950 years, a ripe, ripe old age. 
And as we know, after the flood, uh, the ages of people would gradually decrease. We'll see that in Genesis chapter 10. Again, the averages go down. And then it says, and he died. And this recalls the genealogy of Adam and Seth uh, that's found in chapter 5, following the story of the fall of man, of Adam and Eve. And the repeated refrain in Genesis chapter 5 was that, and he died. And he died. Every man mentioned except, of course, Enoch. So even Noah, this singularly blameless, righteous, faithful, worshipful, walking with God man, he died. The curse of death was still on mankind after the flood. But his line lives. His descendants will multiply. The line of the promised seed survives. And yet we come upon this sordid incident and story in the life of Noah. Out of everything that Noah did after the flood, um, God records this one. And I think it's so that we know of our own shameful sin and the tendency of those around us to sin, even disgracefully, even awfully, uh, sometimes even Christians. It's going to rear its ugly head in our lives and in the lives of others. How do we deal with it? Love covers Love bears a multitude of transgressions. We must battle against our own sin, and we look to Christ who covered us. He gave us his righteousness, and we want to strive to to live in that righteousness and live honorably before our Lord God. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this text and this interesting story that we don't always think Uh, too deeply about, but we thank you, God, for giving us very practical wisdom and applications from it, um, that we must strive to live honorably even when others sin disgracefully uh, before us, and be humble, and let love, the love of Christ, rule and compel and move and motivate. And thank you for the bigger picture, God, of you sovereignly working your plan for Israel and for the Canaanites and judgment and salvation and um, that ultimately the Savior would come from the line of Shem, that Christ the Messiah, promised one, did come and he is coming again. Uh, But at this time at Christmas, we are celebrating his first coming, the birth of our precious Savior and Lord. And so we want to have worshipful, joyful, hearts uh, in praise of all that you are and all that you've done for us. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.